Hello, and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by Chike Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Out of Africa, Slavery and the Diaspora. In the year 1770, a 13-year-old boy living in what is now Ghana went to visit his uncle. There were a number of other children in the area with whom he was able to pass the time playing. Sometimes, though, kids strayed unsafely too far into the forest. One day, the boy was reluctant to go along, but when he was mocked for his cowardice, he capitulated to the peer pressure with disastrous consequences. He and the others were interrupted by rough men who brought out guns and cutlasses and announced that the kids would be taken to a local ruler to answer for themselves. They were divided into groups. One of the men pretended to be friendly in order to put the kids at ease, telling them that he would clear up everything with the Lord as soon as possible. When they stopped to sleep, however, and morning came, the pretended friend was gone. They also began to encounter people who spoke a language unfamiliar to them. After another half a day's journey, they came upon a town engaging in some sort of a celebration, and they were able to join in and enjoy the singing and dancing, but the joy was short-lived. The boy began to suspect that he would not soon be returning home, and indeed six days later he was still in the same town. Another man came, claiming to know people in the boy's hometown and promising to bring the boy there, and this gave the boy some hope. They went not to his hometown though, but to the coast. Here the boy saw white people for the first time, which scared him greatly, for he had heard that white people might eat you. He was brought to a slave castle full of chained prisoners. The man who had brought him there was given a gun, a piece of cloth, and some lead as payment for the boy. After three days, he was brought to a ship and transported to Cape Coast, where another ship was waiting to embark on a voyage across the Atlantic Ocean. A plan was hatched by the captives on this ship to revolt and destroy the ship, but the plan was foiled. Eventually, the ship sailed, bringing this boy to the Caribbean island of Grenada and introducing him to his new reality, slavery in the Americas. The boy's name was Kopna Otoba Kuguano. This heart-rending account of his capture and enslavement comes from the opening pages of his 1787 book, Thoughts and Sentiments on the Evil and Wicked Traffic of Slavery and Commerce of the Human Species, humbly submitted to the inhabitants of Great Britain by Otoba Kuguano, a native of Africa. In an upcoming episode, we will discuss how Kuguano came to live as a free man in Britain, got involved in anti-slavery activist circles, and eventually wrote this remarkable book. The autobiographical material we have just recounted takes up but a few pages of the book, which is therefore not primarily a testimony concerning his personal experience of slavery, but rather an exercise in political philosophy, a carefully reasoned yet passionate attack on the transatlantic slave trade and slavery in the West Indies. Kuguano's story unfolded and his thought developed amidst the traumatic, world-shifting impacts of slavery and colonization by Europeans in the modern era, which will provide the frame for this second section of our series of episodes on Africana philosophy. We will be exploring philosophical thought produced by Africans and people of recent African descent in reaction to these events and processes. This first episode of the new section is intended, much like Koguano's autobiographical account near the beginning of his book, to give some context for the philosophical content that will be our focus. Ironically, the first step in grasping the importance of the enslavement of Africans by Europeans in the modern world is understanding the way in which it is not special. 
For many people today, the word slavery automatically conjures up images of black people working in cotton plantations in the American South. But it is, of course, an understatement to say that the practice of slavery long predates what took place in the United States or in the British colonies that came to form that country. Slavery has played a role of some sort in a great many, perhaps even most, of the social orders devised by human beings over the period of our history as a species, starting from the time in which we ceased to be predominantly hunters and gatherers. Indeed, it did not take turning to Africana philosophy for slavery to be raised not only as a historical fact, but as a matter of philosophical relevance on this podcast. Already, episode 48 of the original series of episodes addressed the topic of Aristotle's defense of slavery. It is also worth remembering that, etymologically, the word slave is commonly thought to be derived through the Latin word sclavus from the word slav, thus representing an association in medieval times of slavery with the conquering and selling of Slavic people. More recently, in this series of episodes on Africana philosophy, we discussed philosophical reflections on slavery by Zera Jacob and Ahmed Baba. Assuming Zera Jacob was a real person, these two thinkers were both alive and active in the early part of the 17th century, a time during which the transatlantic slave trade and slavery in the Americas were already underway, but neither of them associated slavery with those processes and places. They thought rather mainly, and perhaps even exclusively, of slavery in the Islamic world, with Zera Yaakov criticizing Islam among the world religions for its tolerance of slavery, and Ahmed Baba condoning slavery but upholding the traditional view that Muslims should not be enslaved, regardless of where they come from or how they look. As you will recall, this latter discussion was our first encounter with the problem of the association of slavery with black people, as Ahmed Baba's treatise was provoked by an idea which had begun circulating in the Islamic world, that black Africans of whatever religion could be justifiably enslaved. But if the trans-Saharan slave trade has received too little attention from historians of philosophy, the fact remains that it was ultimately dwarfed in its impact, both on human affairs in general, and on the development of philosophy in particular, by the transatlantic trade. How did this trade get going? And what made it so incomparably consequential when contrasted with earlier and contemporary forms of slavery. To address the question of its origin, we must look first to the history of the cultivation of sugarcane. First domesticated many thousands of years ago by peoples of the South Pacific, the cultivation of sugar gradually made its way westward. By medieval times, it was an important crop in the Middle East. Then the Crusades introduced it to Europeans, which brings us to the central role of sugar production by the Portuguese, the Spanish, and Italians, like the Genoese, in the story of the slave trade, a story that must be connected to these people's more famous roles in European exploration of the so-called New World in the 15th and 16th centuries. Before those well-known trips made across the ocean blue in 1492, though, there was the important process in the earlier half of the 15th century, too often overlooked, of colonizing islands in the Atlantic, closer to Europe and Africa. The Spanish laid claim to the Canary Islands, and the Portuguese took the uninhabited islands of Madeira and the Azores. At the same time, the Portuguese began to sail along the African coast further than before. It is in 1441 that we find the first instance of a Portuguese ship taking African captives back to Portugal. There were only 12 of them, and it is unclear whether they were brought as slaves or as exhibits to be shown off but similar numbers of captives were taken the next year and the year after that, and then in 1444, 235 people were brought back to be sold. 
As sugar plantations were created in Madeira and the Canary Islands, Africans were brought there to work those plantations. In the 1480s, the Portuguese began to settle Sao Tome, a previously uninhabited island in the Gulf of Guinea, not far from present-day Gabon and today part of the country known as Sao Tome and Principe. There too, sugar plantations were created and worked by Africans brought from the mainland. The trade that transported people all the way across the Atlantic was thus preceded by the trade bringing people just a short boat ride from the African coast. How extensive and historically significant the enslavement of Africans by Europeans would have been if Christopher Columbus had not made his voyages, or if the colonization of the Americas had not ensued, is an interesting question. The world we live in, however, is the world in which the various European powers who colonized the Americas ended up using, and in many places completely depending upon, enslaved Africans for the economic growth and development of their colonies. Indeed, even thinking about the life of Columbus, a Genoese merchant who spent time in Madeira, who visited the Portuguese fort of Elmina on the coast of present-day Ghana, and who brought sugarcane seeds with him on his second voyage to the Americas, one is struck by how well he represents the expanding Atlantic world that had been taking shape over the course of the 15th century. Nevertheless, it is well known, or at least it ought to be well known, that early on, Columbus saw the enslavement of the indigenous people of the Caribbean as the way forward. Not only were the Tainos of Hispaniola forced to work extracting gold for the Spanish under Columbus's rule, but in February 1495, the first ship transporting slaves across the Atlantic went not from Africa to the Americas, but from Hispaniola to Spain, carrying hundreds of captured Tainos. Reliance on indigenous labor did not last long, however, in large part because of how they were, as a population, devastated by diseases brought by Europeans. This is a good point at which to note the crucial epidemiological dimension of the circumstances that made the slavery of Africans so important to the modern world. The indigenous peoples of the Americas were vulnerable to European diseases at a catastrophic rate. The exact numbers are disputed, but this was certainly the largest extinction of humans in history, with some regions suffering a population decline of 90% or more. By contrast, Africans were less vulnerable to disease in the New World than Europeans as a result of immunities acquired in the coastal African environment. It is possible that there were earlier arrivals unrecorded, but the first certain instance in which an enslaved African went to the New World is a visit to Hispaniola in 1502 by the slave of a rich Spaniard sent to sell goods on his master's behalf. Only eight years later, in 1510, King Ferdinand, the same Spanish king who had sponsored Columbus's exploration, authorized the shipment of 50 slaves to Hispaniola to work in gold mines. The slave trade to the Americas had begun. One way to confront the unique transformation that followed this event is to recognize, as historian Patrick Manning points out, that what distinguishes the slavery of Africans under Europeans is less the fact of being enslaved itself. After all, as we've mentioned, peoples of many different backgrounds have been enslaved throughout recorded history, and more the matter of when they were being enslaved. As a global institution, slavery had arguably been on the decline. Certainly, Europeans were being enslaved much less frequently than in the past. Only in the case of Africans did the modern era translate to a sharp and consistent increase in enslavement, and Manning includes the situation within Africa itself in making this point. For slavery certainly existed throughout Africa, but it expanded from a somewhat marginal institution to one of central importance 
during the modern period, as he says. Manning also notes that in 1500, even though the Portuguese and the Spanish were already importing African slaves, both to the Iberian Peninsula and to the islands in the Atlantic they had colonized, Africans undoubtedly remained a minority among the world's population of slaves. By contrast, 200 years later, in 1700, Africans made up the overwhelming majority of the slave population of the world. The story of Europe's rise to world dominance in the modern era, and especially, of course, the story of their colonization of the Americas, requires, as a central rather than marginal factor, the story of the draining of a huge portion of Africa's population through the transatlantic slave trade. Just how many Africans were taken from their home and brought to the Americas in this way? Estimates since the historian Philip Curtin's vital work on the subject in his 1969 book, The Atlantic Slave Trade, A Census, tend to range between 9 and 12 million. But to this number must be added those taken who did not make it to the Americas. Counting those who perished during the so-called Middle Passage, the term commonly applied to the voyage across the Atlantic in these squalid and often lethal conditions of slave ships, likely adds somewhere between 1 and 2 million to the total. It is also estimated that another 6 to 7 million enslaved Africans may have been exported through the Sahara and the Indian Ocean to eastern slave markets. While we've said much about the Iberian role in beginning this transatlantic trade, they were, of course, eventually joined by others, particularly the French, the British, the Dutch, the Swedish, the Danish, and the German Principality of Brandenburg. There was even brief involvement by the Duchy of Courland, a vassal state of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth that is today part of Latvia, which gives some sense of what a Europe-wide project involvement in the trade in Africans was. Of the non-Iberian powers, though, the British stand out for the high volume and high profit of their trade, and this, of course, is the context for the story of Cuguano's enslavement with which we began. It is worth noting, though, that the trade in slaves to the British colonies of North America, and then, once it gained independence, to the United States, makes up a surprisingly small amount of the total trade to the Americas, given how much attention slavery in the United States garners. Probably fewer than half a million Africans ended up being brought there. The country that received the largest numbers of Africans by far is Brazil, where at least 4 million Africans were sent. The impact of the slave trade on Africans was immense and disastrous. While the lucrative task of meeting the rising demand of European buyers certainly enriched many individual slave traders and various polities active in the trade, the high demand naturally encouraged hostility, war, and raiding between peoples, so that captives could be taken and sold. In this respect, the slave trade produced a situation of instability and insecurity on the African continent that could not be conducive to its general economic development, even putting aside matters of human rights. The impact on the Africans who were taken and sold was, of course, as profound as any human experience could possibly be. How did all this shape philosophical thinking in the modern era? That will be a key question, implicit or explicit, in the episodes of this second part of the podcast series. In the first part, we focused on philosophy as expressed in the pre-colonial cultures, and thus mainly in the indigenous tongues of Africa. Our focus in this second part, and also the third part to come, will be on philosophy in European languages. After all, one of the most well-known and transformative impacts of slavery in the Americas was the loss of indigenous African languages, and of various other aspects of traditional African culture. This was in part due to active suppression, 
in part to the simple fact that the slaves brought together on New World plantations were drawn from different ethno-linguistic backgrounds, making it hard to hold on to languages in subsequent generations. We should clarify, though, that philosophy in Africa will remain part of the story we are telling. The presence of Europeans on the western coast of Africa, starting as early as the 15th century, inspired those insightful rumors of white cannibalism among inland populations, as mentioned in the story of Kugoano's abduction. This was the beginning of a process of the colonization of Africa that would ultimately bring almost all of the continent under European power. Philosophical thought produced in African languages by Africans whose intellectual production was shaped by European colonialism is thus part of the story. So it's really at this point in the series that the term Africana philosophy becomes most appropriate as a description of our subject matter. We are interested as before in philosophy from Africa, but we are now also ready to explore philosophy from the African diaspora, that scattering of peoples created by the triangular trade connecting Africa as source of unpaid labor, the imperial powers of Europe, and the colonized lands of the Americas. The second part of the series will cover the period of slavery and colonialism up until the end of the 19th century, which in practice will mean a relatively small set of episodes on Africana philosophy in the 18th century, and then a larger set of episodes on Africana philosophy in the 19th century. Some listeners might worry that a series of episodes about philosophy reacting to slavery and colonization might get rather boring, as we are talking about things widely recognized today as indefensibly wrong. We know that the traffic of the human species is evil and wicked, so what do we really learn by hearing figures like Kuguano say so? Well, for starters, you shouldn't assume that responses to slavery by thinkers of the Africana world were always condemnations of that practice. Part of the very next episode will be about Jacobus Capitain, a black thinker of the 18th century who, shockingly from our present perspective, defended the compatibility of Christianity and slavery. It is true, however, that Capitain is an exception to the rule. If Coguano thus represents the norm in railing against slavery, he nevertheless also represents a distinct and unique philosophical perspective. Part of what is interesting about his thoughts and those of other anti-slavery thinkers, like the famous African-American abolitionist Frederick Douglass, is getting the chance to examine the kinds of inferences and distinctions they made in order to condemn slavery. We'll be asking whether these constituted cogent and effective ways to argue against slavery, and also inquiring into the broader moral and political implications that follow from their conceptions of humanity, dignity, labor, and the like. Then too, even in a work like Koguano's Thoughts and Sentiments, moral and political matters are not the only matters of philosophical interest that come up. Koguano responds to interpretations of the Bible as condoning slavery by developing a theory of how God communicates with human beings through symbols, including elements of the natural world. He thus raises important questions of theology, metaphysics, and hermeneutics. To explore philosophy produced in the wake of slavery is not to study only the philosophy of slavery, even in cases like Koguano's, where the nature of slavery is among his central concerns. Perhaps the best way to hint at how much there is for us to explore in episodes to come is to close this episode by looking at a writer and thinker who came along much earlier than Kuguano. Let's return to the Iberian Peninsula and to the 16th century, the time during which the transatlantic slave trade first began to flourish. It is in this century that we find the oldest known book published in a European language by someone of sub-Saharan African descent, a book of poetry by a man known as Juan Latino. 
he was born in 1516, or perhaps in 1518, and the date of his death is even less certain, as it has been estimated to be either in the last decade of the 16th century or in the first decade of the 17th. Among the many other things about Latino that we do not know for certain is where he was born. An autobiographical note in his second book of poetry states that he was taken out of Ethiopia in infancy, which we can take to mean that he was captured in West Africa and brought away as a slave at a young age. Here, the word Ethiopia need not refer to the country in the Horn of Africa. It most likely represents appropriation of the classical use of the term to refer to black Africa in general, which is a usage that we'll be encountering regularly. On the other hand, some sources suggest that he was born in Spain. Whether it was him or his parents that were brought forcibly to Spain, we know that he grew up a slave in the household of the Count of Cabra and his wife Elvira. Latino was a personal servant and companion to their son, who was, through his mother, the third Duke of Sessa. When the family moved from Baena to Granada, after the Count's death, the young Duke began to study at the Cathedral of Granada. It appears that his servant benefited from attending these lessons as well. He began to show great aptitude in Greek and especially in Latin. The name Latino is in fact a nickname bestowed as recognition of Juan's consummate skill in Latin. He may not have previously had any surname. Latino's talent led him to achieve multiple degrees from the University of Granada and eventually become a respected professor of grammar at the university. While in this position, he wrote poetry in Latin and in 1573 published his first book of poetry. We won't bother you with the title because to the extent that it has one at all, it is a page-length description of the book's contents. The most important work in this book is the Austrias Carmen, also known as the Austriad, or as one scholar translates its title, the Song of John of Austria. John of Austria was the illegitimate son of King Charles V, one of the Habsburg rulers of Spain, and while John's half-brother Philip II was on the Spanish throne, John led the naval fleet that defeated the Ottoman Empire at the Battle of Lepanto in 1571. Latino's Austriad tells the story of the Battle of Lepanto, celebrating Spain's glorious victory over the Turks. Latino was clearly an exceptional figure, though not unique. We'll soon be meeting other authors who rose from slavery to become noteworthy literary figures. Scholars generally assume that somewhere along the way, Latino was officially freed from slavery, and he seems to imply as much in the autobiographical note previously mentioned, but we have no clear record of his manumission. And in fact, Spanish Golden Age playwright Diego Jimenez de Enciso wrote a play about him early in the 17th century called The Famous Drama of Juan Latino, which has as a central plot point the idea that Latino remained a slave even while pursuing knowledge, literary excellence, and love. When his love interest is reluctant to marry him in this subjugated state, the fictionalized Latino asks, Can soul be slave? Latino also reflects on his status as a black author in his own works. In a poem from his book Introducing the Austriad, addressed to King Philip II, Latino asks permission from the king to sing the praises of the king's brother. He suggests that the uniqueness of John's victory requires the uniqueness of a black poet to celebrate it, to the potential objection that there would be something distasteful about having a black poet play this role, he responds, If our black face displeases your ministers, O king, a white face does not please the people of Ethiopia. Over there, when a white man visits the east, he is looked down on. The leaders are black, and the king there is dark. 
Latino here points out the contextual limits of racism. The white part of the world is but one part of the larger whole, and its irrational prejudices are no more indicative of the truth than the prejudices that can be found elsewhere. Furthermore, it makes no sense to associate blackness with slavery, given the existence of powerful black rulers. With intellectual moves like these, Latino was, we might say, getting out in front of the problem early on, as a contrast between two further responses to black writing in Latin may demonstrate. In 1605, Miguel de Cervantes published volume one of his famous Don Quixote, and in a prefatory poem addressed to the book itself by a character called Urganda the Unknown, he makes reference to the esteemed professor of grammar in Granada, saying, since it did not please heaven that you would turn out as clever as the black Juan Latino, avoid speaking Latin. Is there sarcasm here? One imagines that Cervantes sees his choice to write solely in Spanish, avoiding Latin, as legitimate, so that Latino is perhaps damned with this praise for his love of a dead language. Nevertheless, Cervantes, who incidentally had experienced slavery himself, having been held captive for five years in Algeria, does not appear to have any doubts about Latino's intelligence. Around a century later, a black man named Francis Williams was born free in Jamaica, spent some time being educated in England, and wrote some poetry in Latin. The famous Scottish philosopher David Hume discusses Williams in a 1753 revision of his essay Of National Characters. In a footnote he writes, I am apt to suspect the Negroes, and in general all the other species of men, for there are four or five different kinds, to be naturally inferior to the whites. Alluding to Williams, he goes on to write, In Jamaica, indeed, they talk of one Negro as a man of parts and learning, but tis likely he is admired for very slender accomplishments, like a parrot, who speaks a few words plainly. This comment from someone generally recognized as one of the most brilliant philosophical minds, not just of his time, but of all time, indicates how common and influential the corrosive ideas of natural white superiority and black inferiority had become by the middle of the 18th century. As we will see when we discuss Phyllis Wheatley, another black African who learned Latin and wrote poetry, albeit poetry in English, Hume's dismissal of Williams as a parrot would not be the last time a black poet of the 18th century was compared to a caged bird. Our next episode, however, will be about a black African who wrote in Latin, but not poetry. Anton Wilhelm Amo was not a poet, but rather a professional philosopher, engaging in his work with the ideas of thinkers like René Descartes on the problem of the relation between the mind and the body. Discussing Amo will show that the philosophical ideas of black minds thinking in the wake of slavery were in no way limited to the question of what to say and do about the enslavement of black bodies, though we have evidence that Amo weighed in on that question as well. If you don't mind the wait of two weeks, Amo is some body we would like you to meet, next time here on the History of Africana Philosophy. I'm gonna tell him I had heart trials.